I'm good? I think I can hear myself. You can hear me. Beth, you can see me back there. <clears throat> All right, I'll try to stand on my tiptoes for those of you on the back row. I can see Kyle Walters. That's never been a problem uh, <clears throat> for me when I'm preaching. Okay. This is so interesting because uh, this is the exact same lectern that they bought for me at North Park Church in the North Hills of Pittsburgh. This is amazing, Doug. I'm telling you, the exact same lectern. Now, Covenant was gracious enough to send my former pulpit with me to Pittsburgh. Mark Diener made it himself. It was to my specific specifications. It was about two inches taller than most pulpits would have been because I'm two inches taller than most pastors, and that was great. Uh, but uh, I had, we had a lady at our church up north that said, oh, it's brown. It doesn't go with the decor on the stage. <laughs> so it had to go, Mark, and they replaced it with this thing. I, eventually, I got, I got used to it, but here it is. So at least I have that degree of comfort level that I know right where to put the water, uh, all, all of that's good. So, uh, as noted, for the past 15 roughly years, I've been pastor of North Park Evangelical Presbyterian Church in the North Hills of Pittsburgh in a community called Wexford. And uh, you'll be interested to know that on the date of my installation in 2009, Covenant Presbyterian Church was represented by a number of people, one of whom was a part of our commission, whose name was Bruce Lewis. And Bruce was the chairman of the pulpit committee that called me here in 1982. He was living in Pittsburgh at the time and participated in my installation at that church in 2009. Now, Bruce, you talk about a guy with a ministry to Asians, had an extraordinary ministry to Asians in the Carnegie Mellon and Pitt... University uh, graduate school over there, led a number of folks to Christ. He had a daily Bible study with breakfast in his home. That's Bruce Lewis, Covenant's missionary to Pittsburgh back in those days, who welcomed me to Pittsburgh as, uh, in a sense, an ambassador of this church, but also on my last day January 14th. That wasn't long ago, Rick. That was, what, two weeks ago today was my last Sunday at North Park Church, and uh, they prayed a blessing over me. But with us on that day was another Covenant Presbyterian Church elder uh, named Bruce Biteman and his wife, Cynthia. Now, most of you have no idea who these people are because they haven't been around the church since 1992. But you had Bruce there to greet me and Bruce there to send me away from North Park Church, both of them former elders of this particular body. Now, today... Uh, I, I look around. We, I should note there's some people here that have come from some distance to be with us as far as Fellsmere, uh, actually, <laughs> Cocoa Beach. We do have a Jacksonville couple, the Gideons. But we have two couples from Pittsburgh, from our church up there, uh, Jake and Judy Jacobs. Where did y'all land? We're at, they're right there in the middle. They hang out at Barefoot Bay for a little bit of the winter, and they drove up to see us today. And then Doug and Kim Runyon back there uh, near Beth, and, uh, and they have a camper, so they go wherever the Spirit leads them. And I just want to know the Spirit seems to lead them to places where there's good weather. <laughs> I've noticed that, Doug. You can't fool me. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, good, good to have uh, a taste of Pittsburgh here today as well. So I am, uh, I, people ask me, what, what am I doing? And I'm like, I don't know. But I, I, I've come up with the term temporarily retired. 
Michael Jordan did that, didn't he? Okay, Tom Brady did it uh, once, temporarily retired, uh, and, and Beth and I are practicing the snowbird life by spending six weeks uh, in, in the southern climbs, although our first day of retirement, we drove south to good weather and ended up spending the night with Kathy Moeller, whom some of you would know, in Knoxville, Tennessee, where they got a foot of snow. <laughs> and her husband was on a business trip in Miami, so my first day of retirement, I'm shoveling a foot of snow <laughs> out of a driveway in Knoxville, Tennessee. True story. Then we slipped on down Further down, at some point on I-75, we realized, okay, we're going to survive this storm, and uh, we went to Carrollton, Georgia. So Andrew, our oldest, and Sarah, our oldest of the three girls, all they live in Carrollton, Georgia. Andrew's been a pastor there for about 12 years at King's Chapel PCA Church, uh, and we have seven grandkids eight minutes apart in Carrollton, Georgia. So we had three minutes there, and then we tripped on further south to Apopka, where the weather's getting better uh, as we go. Still chilly, though, in Apopka eight days ago because uh, we were watching flag football in 40-degree weather. I wasn't, uh, uh, and uh, four grandsons, uh, our daughter Hannah and her family moved from Melbourne to Apopka about a year and a half ago. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, so we're here for a couple of weeks. Actually, we were in Pittsburgh this time yesterday at a funeral we flew back for uh, yesterday. And so, uh, thankfully, the Spirit brought me here on Spirit Airlines uh, late last night. <laughs> And thankful for Panera Coffee uh, to get me through this blessed morning. Uh, treat for us to be here with, with you. Uh, I'll be with the saints at Northside uh, next Sunday. Seems that uh, both pastors are going through some rough times. Uh, Jerry with his son and Jeff with his own health uh, at Northside. So we've been, uh, as, I, as I stood, you know, I was wondering coming in, you know, how many people would I recognize and uh, more, more than I expected, to be honest, uh, with you, and uh, quite, quite blown away by the experience of uh, being back here and seeing, uh, seeing so many of you that, I, that we love so deeply. And, and some, I, I got to say, I didn't expect to see. Yeah. Ray Welch, didn't know you'd still be with us, brother. Good to have you. <laughs> still uh, didn't expect to see See, Ray, uh, anyway, so, and then some surprise visitors from out, out of town uh, as well. So ah, it took me a while to uh, just uh, get, process my emotions uh, as I get ready to bring the Word today. So I do want to focus on Jesus. At the end of four decades of teaching the Word of God, I, I did something I sort of always wanted to do but been a bit leery of, and that is I preached through the book of Romans. Uh, so I've spent the last couple of years preaching through Romans. You know, Paul in Ephesians 3 said, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So today, you're my Gentiles, and as I prayed about what to bring to this body today, the Spirit led me to study, uh, to a study from this time uh, about a year ago, and I was in Romans chapter 5. The passage I'm going to read is a bit long. Uh, try to stay focused on God's Word, and then we'll work through it. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, is it up there? I, okay, I guess I can see it. Get, getting used to my surroundings here. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. 
Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who received the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ." So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we will focus mostly on the comparison made in these verses between Adam the first and Adam the second, between the first human and the Lord Jesus. But there are several lines of thought in this portion of Scripture that are somewhat difficult, and I want to begin by addressing those. They're not on the main point, but they serve, if you will, as side roads to look at and consider. We start with a quick visit back to the doctrine of original sin. Verse 12, among others, tells us that all the human race fell under the guilt and condemnation and death because of what Adam did. In Christian theology, we call that idea original sin. It means that human beings are born not just with a propensity to sin, but with actual guilt upon them. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 6, verse 3 says, They, Adam and Eve, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, <coughs> descending from them by ordinary generation. Uh, the guilt of this sin is imputed, it says, and I am uh, sure for some of us that's a troublesome idea. I mean, that does not seem fair. When we compare Adam and Jesus, we will say more on this, and hopefully at that point you can grasp the justice of God in this matter, but at this point I would simply note that any objection of injustice is invalidated when you reveal yourself to be a hypocrite by means of your own personal sin. You see, I, I may not like what Adam chose to do, but every time I opt to disobey God, you know what I'm doing? I'm saying, yeah, Adam, I'm with you. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I'm expressing my agreement in his choice to do his own thing, to despise the word of God, to commit cosmic treason. On to a second side road. This addresses the hint of universalism in Romans 5. And by that word universalism, uh, that's the proposition that all humans ultimately make it into God's glory and are what we like to call saved. 
If you look at our passage, you may see a line that could lead to that, specifically verse 18. As through one transgression there resulted condemnation of light or condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. And so we see that all humans are cast down into judgment by Adam's transgression. So why not conclude that all humans are then lifted up to glory and to grace through the work of Jesus? Why not? Well, uh, largely because so many other portions of Scripture very clearly teach that the benefits of Christ's work are only uh, possessed by, they only accrue to those who have faith in Jesus, and the Word of God speaks often about eternal death and those who will experience it as a result of their sin and their unbelief. So this one line cannot possibly contradict so many other scriptures, and it does not. In context, the word all here can be understood to mean all who are in Christ. As we will see, I hope you know, all humanity is divided into two basic races, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Those who are in Adam, that's where we all start and those who are in Christ, where some of us land. Only a portion of those in Adam then are transferred by grace into that Christian camp. But all of that portion is and will be justified. The very next verse in Romans 5 would suggest that to us, as it says there in verse 19, "...as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners." Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. This is where you say amen. Amen. Praise God. All right. Uh, There you get the word many, which aligns more obviously with all else that we read and know to be true. One more quick side road before we get to the main point, and this one is about the law. Verse 20 has this enigmatic statement, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. You can talk about that one at your theology group, Jonathan. What does that mean? What's he trying to say there? Increasing transgression? That doesn't sound like a good thing, but Paul has already told us in Romans that the law of God is good, so what does he mean here? Well, a bit of conjecture would be involved to be sure, but I suggest he means that the law increases sin by making it more obvious to us, pointing it out to the end that we notice it more readily and hopefully will be convicted by it. Again, that's conjecture. The New Living Translation, though, actually translates verse 20 this way, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. Were. And I think that's the primary idea. Very good then. Time to transition to the main subject for today. That was all introduction. <laughs> we get on the main highway for this morning and look at this marvelous word about Jesus as the last Adam. And when I call him that, I echo 1 Corinthians 15, which gives Jesus that, that name. But clearly, am I okay to move around? I, I, don't, I don't lose my sound if I go over here. I can do that. I got this thing. It makes me peripatetic, which none of you recall me ever being back in the day when I was younger. All right. Um, Paul is comparing and contrasting Jesus with Adam, right? In verse 14, we read a reference to Adam, and then it says, 
who is a type of Him who was to come. Again, the New Living Translation, which I occasionally quote nowadays, my wife finally made me a convert uh, with the help of a D-men clause. Anyway, it says, uh, now Adam is a symbol, a representative of Christ who was yet to come. So a representation, a symbol, a type, all convey the same basic idea. One of the reasons why I hold to the notion that the Bible is inspired by God is the presence of the obvious messianic types in the Old Testament. It is extraordinary, these actual historical characters whose story is told centuries and millennia before Jesus, and yet we see the parallels so plainly. Besides Adam, there was Isaac or uh, Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of promise, who was offered up as a sacrifice by his father, Abraham. Such a picture of Jesus to come. There was Joseph, the favored son, betrayed by his brothers, even sold for silver, wrongly accused, thrown into prison, and then raised from that low place to the right hand of the king where he became a savior to his brothers. Just phenomenal, the parallels to the Jesus story, as I believe Randy Pope shared with you already uh, this month. There's Esther, the queen who uses her beauty and acceptability before the king to intercede for Israel and rescue them from destruction. And you also have the non-human types, the lamb and the oxen who are slain for the sins of the people, their sins laid upon the spotless male animal. All of these are types you can draw lines between what the Old Testament says about them and what we read of Jesus, uh, who is called by theologians the anti-type, the one who corresponds to the type. So you have type and anti-type. You have Adam and you have Jesus. Romans 5 is the classic passage, so let's break it down. First, we note the similarities between Adam and Jesus. And I'll, I'll give you four. First is that both were real historical characters, okay? They were real historical characters. This is kind of obvious from the text, I think, but I only mention it because there are plenty of scholars who teach that Adam was not a real historical figure, that he was a mythological figure meant to teach us something true, but not to be taken literally. There is, in fact, a school of old earth theistic evolutionists who claim uh, who claim scriptural fidelity for their views, but they deny the historicity of Adam and Eve and the stories from the garden. Uh, there are several problems with that particular perspective. It goes beyond just an interpretation of Genesis and theories of human origins because Paul takes up Adam as a type of Christ, and he treats Genesis as a historical account. He compares a historic Christ to a historic Adam. It would seem quite nonsensical to compare a historical figure to a mythological one. Now, we could wonder, and here I'm going to bring in a little Pittsburghese for you here. Uh, we can wonder who could win a fight between T.J. Watt and Cameron Hayward. Do we have that picture? There we go. T.J. Watt, the NFL's most valuable defensive player, and Cam Hayward, a teammate, honestly. He's, it'd be an interesting fight, let me tell you. Uh, we can imagine who would win that fight, but it would be silly to imagine uh, who would win a fight between T.J. Watt and Spider-Man. 
right? Um, yeah, because one is a real historical figure, the other is imaginary, and I would note as well that Adam appears twice in the New Testament in the genealogies of Jesus. Clearly, the writers of the Gospels are giving us an actual record of real human beings who go back in history. There is Adam at the beginning of the list. So don't tell me he's just a myth. Jesus really lived. Adam really lived. And they have that in common and much more. All right. Secondly, Adam and Jesus both entered into a covenant with God. Okay. We have many examples of covenants in Scripture. Uh, Covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham and his sons, covenant with David and so on. The term covenant is not really there with regard to Adam, but you can see the elements of one if you read it closely. God made a promise to Adam. It was a negative one. He said, you eat of that tree and you will. Yeah. But but in light of Romans 5, we can say that there was a flip side to the warning. Don't eat that tree and you will live with me in blessing forever. Just so a covenant was made with Jesus in the secret council of heaven, The Father and the Son entered into a covenant of redemption. Jesus agrees to become the head and representative of a new humanity, taking upon Himself the task of fulfilling the divine law and then dying to make satisfaction for the sins of the people, those people that were given to Him. Jesus even speaks that way about all who would believe. He calls them in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me. Four times in John, he uses that language of the Father having given to him certain select individuals who will repent and believe and come to comprise his body and comprise his bride. So we who trust in Christ are those given to Jesus. And when did this occur? Oh, it was before the foundation of the world. In the secret councils of our Trinitarian God, the new covenant introduced 2,000 years ago is only an offshoot of the eternal covenant between Father and the Son. So a historic Adam and a historic Jesus were in covenant with God. Thirdly now, we see that both endured a trial, a problem, or probation, or a test. The test involved what we think of as a temptation. For Adam, it came via the serpent of old, and to some extent Eve. Adam was appointed as the guardian of the garden, but he failed in his first and only major contest. Verse 12 of our passage says that Adam allowed sin into the garden and death with it. Verses 16 and 18 say he transgressed and invited condemnation. That was the Adam story, at least the first Adam. But Paul says there is a second Adam, a last Adam story, and whereas Adam the first blew it terribly, Adam the last conquered. Jesus took on flesh. He came under the law. He endured temptation. He endured trial. And He walked in perfect obedience, even unto death. The probation of Jesus probably seen most clearly in two gospel stories. First, you know, as early in His ministry when He spends 40 days fasting in the desert and then is confronted by the devil in the wilderness and, uh, and, and prevailed over Him. Adam fell with a full belly in a rich garden. 
<coughs> Jesus stood while in weakness in the desert. Satan brought out his big guns to tempt Jesus to seek glory, to seek glory apart from the cross. But Jesus rebuked him and wore Satan down. The other occasion we, we see uh, where we can see the contest raging it is actually in another garden, right? Uh, there, the garden of Gethsemane. There the devil again sought to deter Jesus from following the Father's will all the way to the cross. And I, I cannot explain how the divine Son of God would struggle, but struggle he apparently did, sweating drops of blood as he said, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. And against those words and that resolve, Satan had no reply. He was beaten, not by Adam the first, but by Adam the second and the last. Our Savior is the champion and the head of a new humanity. Now, there's not many hymns that mention this theme from Romans 5. But I point you to a couple. One is entitled, Be Ye Glad. Uh, and many of you, I'm sure, will remember December 6, 1998. When I sang this song <laughs> as a solo in our worship service. Right? You, you remember that? No. My only solo ever. I was confident the lyrics would carry me. In these days of confused situations, in these nights of a restless remorse, when the heart and the soul of a nation lay wounded and cold as a corpse. Here you go. From the grave of the innocent Adam. Bringing joy to the sad, all your cries have been heard, and the ransom has been paid up in full. Be ye glad. We'll stop there. <laughs> you sing it on your own time, pal. Jack. All right. But well, you hear that from the grave of the innocent Adam. The other I bet you have sung here, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And rumor has it, we'll sing it again uh, even today. Come behold the wondrous mystery, he the perfect son of man. In his living and his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. Thank God that we find our hope in the champion of God who defeated sin, who defeated Satan on our behalf. We stand in Him, Amen. in Him. Now to our fourth point of comparison between Adam and Jesus. Both served as heads, representatives of particular bodies of peoples, races, descendants. Paul says this several times in just a few verses. By, by the sin of the one, Adam, many are made sinful. Guilty, condemned. Uh, they, they die by the righteousness of the one, the obedience of the one, the gift of the one, Jesus. Many are made righteous, justified. They know eternal life. The contrast could not be greater than that. But these are the two races of humanity. Again, all of us start in Adam. Some get graciously transferred 
into the race of Jesus. This is the idea theologians call federal headship. Adam represented all of his people. Jesus represented all of his people. Our individualism recoils at this kind of thing, but this is reality, and we really experience it all the time. When our nation went to war with Germany and Japan back in the day, who were we fighting against? Were we opposed to the citizenry of Germany, to the farmer in Japan? No. The average German or the average Japanese person, we weren't, at, we weren't against them. Of course not. But the Japanese and the Germans had leaders who had become hostile to our nation and its interest, and they took their nations down with them. Just so, Adam took down his entire posterity by his cosmic treason. And who of us in here is connected to Adam? Oh, we all are. Do your 23 and me thing and you'll see. <laughs> we all go back to our first parents. This, this is heavy stuff. And I don't pretend to grasp it fully. It is what Lewis called the deep magic, but it is a magic that results ultimately not in my destruction, but in my salvation, as we will see. Almost every verse that is before us in Romans 5 references our unity with our head, either with Adam or with Christ. Our union with Adam, it's responsible for our spiritual death, for our inherent guilt. By the transgression of the one, <coughs> we were all made sinners. That is what it says. But it also says, by the obedience of the one, especially his obedience to bear our sin and his body on the cross, we are made righteous. We don't become righteous in ourselves. We are made, we are accounted, we are considered righteous. The merit of Jesus is imputed to us. This is the gospel. This is glorious. This is good news in every way. Now, we may start in Adam, and maybe you're there today, but you don't have to stay there. Amen. We can be wed to Jesus, joined by faith and by love to Him, and thus all that is His becomes ours and becomes ours forever forever. It's a good word. Kyle, your niece the other day quoted Psalm 23 for me, and she did great, right? She left the word forever out at the end, and I'm like, hey, you're leaving out a very important word. <laughs> forever. This is ours. The effect of Adam's sin can be nullified by Christ, but the work of our Redeemer is eternal. And so we read in verse 21, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's put a bow on our compare and contrast of Adam and Jesus and finish where our chapter finishes. Overwhelming great news. Say that with me. Overwhelming great news. All that stuff about Adam, it was, it was, it's a downer. Uh, but it really just forms the context for the glories of Christ's gospel. The, uh, the reign of death is the backdrop for the reign of grace. 
Being in Christ instead of in Adam means we are no longer under the rule of sin, no longer under death, but under the sweet dominion of grace and of life. I mean, just look at the terms of joy that are there in Romans 5. You go to verse 15, we read about the free gift, but there's more. It speaks once more of a gift and twice more of grace. Verse 16, free gift again. Verse 17, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, which is right standing with God, which Paul says will reign in life. Reign in life. Reign in life through Jesus. Verse 18 speaks of justification of life. Verse 19, many were made righteous. Verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then in the last verse, we read about the reign of grace, which is life eternal in Jesus. I mean, this passage, it just explodes with gospel glory and good news. So boom, there you go. Have you ever read John Bunyan? Any Bunyan readers? Bunyan was best known for his allegorical writings. I love the Holy War, but his most popular, of course, and famous is the Pilgrim's Progress. Reading Bunyan is a spiritual feast. The man just oozed Scripture. It seemed to fill every thought and every sentence that he had. Well, Bunyan, you you may know, wrote Pilgrim's Progress while in prison, He uh, was persecuted by the British government. You you know what he did wrong, Rick? Listen to him. He preached the gospel without a license. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And he did not submit to their tyrannical dictates on how to worship God. Bunyan, somewhat like John Newton, was converted out of, a, uh, out of a rebel carnal background. But boy, did he ever come to grasp the gospel. And when he wrote his autobiography, he entitled it, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Grace Abounding. That's typical Bunyan. The title comes from two Bible verses, the first of which is Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. All the more. All the more. Paul uses that phrase when he writes about the impact of Christ's works. Jesus is the much more Messiah who drives sin and death off the throne and establishes a kingdom of grace and life. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs triumphs of His grace. Death has enjoyed a long reign, but grace now triumphs through the gospel. And in that triumph, you and I find life and we find freedom because though our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. I'll close with a personal story that connects with our history here in Palm Bay. While I was writing this last point just before the new year, 13 months ago, in, in my office in Wexford, Pennsylvania, my office phone rang, and I get a call on that office phone about twice a year anymore. There it rang. I wasn't doing a lot, so I picked it up. <laughs> and on the other end, a man said, Dan, this is Scott Bear. Um, it's a man from San Antonio named Scott. I had not spoken to Scott 25 years. He'd been an engineer at Harris, part of the body here at Covenant for just a few years, back around 1990. A few of you you may remember Scott. I played a little basketball with him too. But he called me after Christmas last year, partly to catch up, 
but mostly to say thank you. Scott had come to covenant at his wife's urging. He was an unbeliever living for the things of this world until he came around our church and I invited him to join a men's group that I was leading. And in that group, he encountered men who were living for a different kingdom, who were genuine, Christ-loving engineers and husbands and fathers. And Scott grew to trust Christ. Well, he moved to Texas. But he didn't leave Jesus behind in Palm Bay. His story is that he became the head elder at his church in Texas. And he discipled his three children in the ways of Christ and many others as well. His third daughter is a missionary in Indonesia today. And he called after 25 years to say thank you to me. Why me? I had a small part in pointing him to Jesus. And Jesus made all the difference. He took this man who was in Adam under condemnation and death and gave him grace and life and abundance and freedom and peace and joy. And Scott's story has been repeated millions of times. It could be yours. And I especially love that Scott didn't uh, hoard his spiritual treasures. He passed them on to his children after him and to others because what a privilege it is. And what a privilege we have to call people out of their bondage into the freedom of the children of God. You can look at verse 19 as a missionary promise. As through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So knowing that, let's share the message of Christ, of grace, of life, and look with hope for the harvest. Let's pray together. Blessed Father, we rejoice in the things we have pondered this morning and the glories of Christ that we discover in His gospel, in His obedience, in His death, in His resurrection, in His life-transforming power. And we pray that our hearts would grasp it more deeply than ever before today, that You would use us to share this incredible life-changing truth with others and that there would be many more like Scott in this city and around the world who catch life and peace and joy and love from Jesus, our triumphant champion. And we pray in His name. Amen.